Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Romans. With that, let's jump into the word here this morning. As I mentioned, we've come as far as Romans chapter 15 in our study. And and here this morning, as we consider the first half of this chapter, Paul will continue to address the topic of unity. And we'll see here this morning how he first summarizes how the strong in the faith should consider those who are weak in the faith. And then what Paul's going to do is take all of this, the entire argument really from the beginning of chapter 14, he's going to root all of it in the broader redeeming work of Christ. And this is a fitting conclusion to his argument, to his exhortation to unity, because after all, we, we see that Jesus Christ himself is the very one who's, who's praying this for his church. It's Jesus who desires unity for his church. As we've considered regularly through these last several weeks, we, we know that, that Jesus, in the last hours of his life, in the remaining time of his earthly ministry, he sought to be an example to his disciples of genuine humility. He, he sought to, to seek and to pray for unity for the very church that he was in the process of establishing the very church that he is still, I believe, interceding for today. There's at least three times in this high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. You don't need to turn there this morning, but in John 17, first in verse 11, Jesus prays, Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Or in verses 20 and 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then again in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. This is incredible. It's still, and I pray that it, I pray that it never loses its impact on any of your minds or hearts, that Jesus himself was praying for you, Christian, that you would experience unity amongst the body of Christ that is the same as the oneness that he has with the Father. You can't explain it no matter how hard you try. There's nothing that you can come up with in your own language to be able to communicate the significance of such a supernatural thing, all you get to do and praise God for is just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can experience such unity. But then the question becomes, do we want that unity? Do we want to give ourselves to that unity? Are we willing to be surrendered in such a way that we can experience the relationships that the Lord has for us? There should be no doubt that, that Jesus, through this prayer, there should be no doubt what he wants for his bride, the church. The problem is, despite this passionate prayer from our Lord and Savior, one could argue that the church is more divided today than ever before. Francis Chan writes, 
the following in his book, Until Unity. He writes, when you consider all the divisions that have fractured the church into literally thousands of branches, it's hard to believe that we all claim to follow the same Jesus who prayed before he died, that we would all be one as he and the Father are one. It's pretty sobering observation. And indeed, the response from many to such an observation often is, well, we're not following the same Jesus. There would be one, some who would contest that, that in fact, there, there are these splinters and, and groups out there that have gone after a false gospel. And this is true. False teaching does abound. And there are some who claim to believe and claim to follow Jesus, but they've believed on another gospel. And this is addressed in the New Testament. It's a gospel that's not a biblical gospel. And certainly we would not endorse unity with such groups. But in many cases, in many cases, there are those who are truly born again. And we've been quick to dismiss especially as we've considered over these past few weeks to dismiss over non-essential matters. This is what Paul has been covering in in, in the last chapter and, and, and now here into chapter 15, really through the next 13 verses, this is what Paul has, has covered. And he's now going to bring all of this, this, this whole argument, if you will, he's going to bring it to a conclusion. And as he does so, he gives us truly sound advice. And that is that in many respects that we, the church, that Paul says we must begin focusing much less on what divides us and more on what unites us. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing, and be united around the cross of Christ and the foundations of the gospel. Why is this so important? Because our unity as the body of Christ can either serve to attract a lost world or repel it. Truly, eternal salvation in many respects is on the line. Now, up to this point, as we considered Romans 14, we've looked then at seven essentials for maintaining unity in a diverse church. If you've been taking notes or you need to get caught up, I'm going to review these seven essentials before we proceed into the next chapter. The first one, going back a couple of weeks, is that as believers... We must genuinely accept other believers even when we have different perspectives. As believers, we must genuinely accept other believers even when we have different perspectives. Number two is that this genuine acceptance must be clarified by essential versus non-essential matters. That is, once again, we, we rally around Jesus in the truth of the gospel, and not the matters of preference that have no bearing on salvation. Number three, such acceptance must be motivated by the lordship of Christ. This acceptance should be motivated by the lordship of Christ. That is when, when it's Jesus who is sitting on the throne of our hearts, When we're on our knees worshiping Jesus, it's a lot harder to get caught up in foolish disputes. You could say that it begins with exalting Him. When we focus more of our time and our energy on worship of Him, it's difficult for us to get sucked in to divisions and disputes because we've got the right focus and hopefully then the right heart. 
And so then with hearts that are surrendered to these philosophical truths, then Paul begins to give us in the latter part of chapter 14, some more practical day-to-day commitments. Number four then, resolve to walk in love toward one another. We're to resolve to walk in love toward one another. And this is about discipline. This is about commitment. God is always the initiator. God is always the one who does the work in our hearts. But we see, biblically speaking, that we are called to respond, that we have the ability to make choices, that you can, when you wake up in the morning, be aware enough because you spend enough time in his word and and enough time in prayer that you can set out for the day and say, today I'm going to be committed to walking in love towards others. When I get behind that person in the checkout line and I know I've got two items and I've got to go really fast and they've got a thousand, right? And and, an equal number of coupons to match. And then something goes wrong and they got to start over. Am I going to choose to love? Wait, it can't be in that setting too, right? Yeah, in every setting we can begin to say, Lord, so work in my heart that I demonstrate love towards people wherever I go. That I have an awareness, a sense that I am an ambassador, a representative. That yes, when I meet others, I come to know that they're a believer. That we can have immediate fellowship and rejoice in the things of you, Lord. And not seek to find how we're divided or what different views we take on this or that. But to rejoice and to demonstrate to a world that we know how to love. And that's different than what they experience. Number five, we live for the kingdom. We live for the kingdom. With a right perspective on our forever home, we're able to rise above the distractions of this temporary dwelling. Friends, it is so easy for us to to get sucked into thinking that this is it. That this is where we belong. That the 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or some 100 years this day and age. That, that, that those are the years that, that, that we're given and, and that's it. And so, yes, I'm not saying we shouldn't seek to make the most of those, especially for the glory of God. But to know and compare that to eternity for a moment. Just try to, try to picture eternity. Try to think of it. Try to comprehend it. I'd submit to you, you can't. You can't really process it. You can't really register it. But that's where you'll be forever. That's your forever home. And so let's live for that kingdom, not for this one. Toward that end then, and number six, we pursue peace. Pursue peace. With the time that we do have, be about being at peace with one another. Do the thing that is of mutual benefit amongst the body, even if it requires great sacrifice. And finally, number seven, live by faith with a clean conscience as we deal with one another. And certainly as we consider our personal convictions, which are a a major part of what Paul has been considering here, we need to take these things before the Lord. And we listen then and act based on his leading, not our own. And so with these seven essentials in mind, then Paul begins to bring this argument to its conclusion, stating here in verses one and two of chapter 15, saying, we then, and and so that's a bit of a concluding statement. It's bringing some finality to it. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples or the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification or the building up of one another. 
as we saw in chapter 14, it is the weaker brother who is in many respects the legalist. This individual relies more on rules and regulations that are not biblical commands. That's not to say they're wrong, but they're not clearly established in Scripture. And, and they rely on such things and, uh, in order to have a clear conscience before God. The strong then are those who are more secure in the liberties that they believe they have in Christ. But to the stronger brother, it would ultimately be selfish to trample on the conscience of the weak. Paul has said here through this study that instead of causing a Christian to stumble, instead of tearing down, instead of damaging, that we should seek to, to build up even if that requires sacrifice, that this is the burden of the stronger brother. Your strength will in part be measured by whether you seek to please yourself or another. If one considers them to be a stronger brother, to to be confident in certain liberties, they should then be more apt to say, I'm willing to sacrifice this for the sake of my brother, to build them up and to encourage them. In their recent book, and this, I think, gives us some insight into the difficulty of this. In their recent book, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons of Barna Research revealed that 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. 86% of those surveyed believed that in order to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things that you desire most. And 91% affirm that to find yourself, you must only look within yourself. If you didn't pick up on it, there was a lot of self mentioned in that assessment. And what they seek then to establish in this book is that the fastest growing world religion of our day is that of self and self-worship. Indeed, This seems to be the prevalent thinking of our day, yet here we are confronted by that which is entirely contradictory to such thinking. And what of enjoying myself, one asks? What of the things that please me? The answer comes in understanding that when you are a part of a body, when you become a part of the body of Christ, there is no more you. Rather, we are as Paul describes it in Ephesians 4.16, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. This causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. See, Scripture begins to give us an understanding of, of what we become a part of as believers, and that ultimately this is a good thing, a wonderful thing, a thing that can contribute positively to everyone's life. But the implication of this then is, if one of us is not doing well, if one of us is struggling, it will have a direct influence on the rest. And I would submit to you that if someone is struggling and it's unknown, it doesn't mean that there's not an impact to the body. There are often hidden things going on within our own body. It may not be readily apparent, but it doesn't mean it's not having its effect. And over time, it gets 
more and more concerning. It begins to show, and such is the body of Christ, necessitating then a body that's unified and transparent and vulnerable with one another. Not so that we just go around sharing all of our problems, but that we can build each other up for the benefit of the whole, to encourage each other. And so then, our first essential to consider for today then, if you're taking notes, would be to seek to please others, not yourself. Seek to please others, not yourself. And to reinforce his argument, Paul will now bring the example of Christ into perspective. Indeed, Paul has waited until the the end of this argument. He's been building and giving different exhortations, and he's going to bring it all home here by saying, if you want to argue with me about this, let's just look at Jesus, (laughs) right? We could say, there you go, just dragging the Bible into it, right? Don't you love it when people do that? Because you can't argue with it. And so here, this is what Paul does in verse 3. He says, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul really asks, as it were, he says, who's your greatest example? And we know that it's Jesus. And he says, even Christ did not please himself. So then are we to look at Jesus and to say, well, good on you, Jesus, but that's not for me. We sometimes try to, but it's a failed argument. And maybe some of us look at it and we say, well, how can I possibly replicate this? And true, you can't be Jesus. Only he can be. It doesn't mean he doesn't call us to live our lives after his pattern. Or that by the spirit that he gives us, we're somehow unable. Rather, Paul writes elsewhere in Philippians in chapter 2, in verses 1 through the first part of verse 7, Paul writes, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. That it would become our prayer, not just that love would conquer our hearts as we've considered often over the last several weeks, but even praying, Lord, give me your mind. Give me the mind of Christ. Lord, help me to adopt these behaviors and these perspectives. Lord, so change and have rule in my heart and my mind that that I would begin to treat others as you have treated me. This is our example. Jesus is our pattern. But praise God, he is also our power. We see then in verse 4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. You see, not only do we gain our ability for such unity through the indwelling of the spirit, but we also then have the encouragement and the hope that comes from the word of God. Paul here in in verse 3 had quoted from Psalm 69 verse 9. It's a messianic psalm. And and, and he does so and gives us sort of this parenthetical statement in verse 4 to basically say, look, 
all of the encouragement that has come in the scriptures before this time, it's all served to point us to these truths. It's beneficial for us. And the scriptures serve as a source of inspiration and of comfort and of hope, and they're given to us by God. And it's God himself who is the source of the scriptures, who accomplishes this work of unity in us, which he then prays in verse 5, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Is that our prayer for one another? Do we pray that way often? Am I praying that way as much as I should for, for, for the body? And are you doing likewise? Lord, grant us to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. That same prayer, Jesus, that you prayed, that that's what we would experience so that, verse 6, you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul is saying, look, our worship is to be unified. We're to be unified in this worship. And, and, and so what we need to understand then is a right understanding of who he is and what he desires should lead to unity amongst the body, which then will lead to right worship. Our time of praise, our fellowship, our study, our prayer, our communion, it's all worship. It's all worship. But what we must understand is our worship will not be what it is intended to be. If there's not unity, we'll experience only glimpses of it. And as I've alluded to in the last couple of weeks, my fear is that oftentimes we're even willing to settle for it, to settle for just slivers of what he ultimately has for us rather than saying lord i want more lord do this work in us and in our fellowship not just and and this is how good he is that in his grace and his mercy he will do this work in some respects just to bless us and we can then experience the beauty of unity but to also know and to care enough to say and lord i know that out there and maybe even here today, or someone who watches online, they're lost. They don't know you. They're a seeker. They're searching. They're looking for something more. They, they want hope because they feel hopeless. And when they begin to see unity amongst people that they go, this is so different. This is so different than what I see in the world today that they would begin then to say, I want that too. And you have the privilege then of saying, let me tell you about Jesus. Verse 7, therefore... So remember, when Paul says, therefore, he's linking it all together. He's saying, this is there for a reason. I'm, I'm taking everything I've said now, and I'm bringing it to this, this new statement here. And so Paul says, therefore, receive one another. Accept one another, some of your translations may read. Just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. What Paul does here, and this is, this is, I mean, eloquent Paul, he, he, he gets this right, especially in, in the book of Romans. He begins to reconnect it with the very beginning of the argument, which, which started there in Romans 14 in verse 1. And so as he starts to bring it all to a close, he returns to the way he began it. And what did he say there? Receive one another. Receive one another. Welcome one another by accepting amongst the body of Christ. And so he begins to bring this all to conclusion. And he then says as a foundation for this, receive one another or accept one another just as he did you. Just as he did you. 
He accepted you. And I won't speak on your behalf. You can do with this what you will. But I know when I think about me, I, I find myself going, why, God? Why did you receive me? Why did you accept me? If you know my heart and your word says you do as well as I think I know it, I'd have said, no, pass on this one. But he didn't. He received you. He accepted you. Praise God. Or I'll just say, again, me. <laughs> I, I know he received me. How about you? Receive one another just as he received you. Friends, this is not to be a point that's easily dismissed for us, but it often is. It's these things like many other things in our life that our familiarity with them starts to, starts to diminish sometimes the, the impact and the power and the significance of it. And these are the types of things that, that in our own devotional life and prayer life, we, we should be praying, Lord, don't ever let this become too familiar. These are the types of truths that can and should be life-changing, perspective-altering when they're truly considered. These are the types of things that for, for most people, you expend a ridiculous amount of energy and you have throughout your life seeking to convince other people to love you and to receive you and to accept you and to want you and to choose you. And the truth of the word of God declares that the creator God of the universe, who was before time and is, and is eternal, said, I love you and I want you and I want to give you everything that you need and then some. We can begin then to find our fulfillment in that. And, and here, Paul's appeal to unity isn't just based on some new age feel-good-ism. It's not about our culture's drumbeat of tolerance. Those things have nothing on biblical unity. Rather, what Paul begins to root this in is God's plan of salvation from the very beginning. This is where he brings it all to its ultimate conclusion is to say this unity that's so important that he is in many respects exhaustively described. He said, it's all based on what God has been doing from the very beginning of time. And so here in verses 8 through 12, Paul then appeals to that truth by citing various Old Testament passages to prove this. Let's look at it together. Beginning in verse 8, he writes, now I say... That Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is the Jew, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises that he had made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, loud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. He does this to prove that God's plan has always been to receive all people, to be a blessing to all nations. And Paul here, in order to really drive this home, doesn't just pick random verses, but he pulls from the Psalms, he pulls from the law, he pulls from the prophets to say, look, in every one of these areas, it's what God has been doing. He's always been about receiving all unto himself. When he called and let's go through a little survey of Scripture here as we begin to, to, to bring things to their conclusion this morning. Go back to the beginning. There in Genesis in the garden, God created. 
He saw that everything was good, but he, and, and, and when he created, he knew. We know that he knew he couldn't be God if he didn't. That man would enter into sin, that man would choose. But even in that, even as they sinned and shame came upon them and nakedness, God began to immediately redeem and restore as he covered them. And even as they were expelled from the garden, because yes, sin has its consequences, but, but even in that, it's God's gracious provision and protection that they wouldn't continue to live in sin forever there in the Garden of Eden. And so he continues to care for them and to provide for them. And of course, mankind now affected by sin continues its descent into wickedness, necessitating at a particular time a worldwide flood that would take humanity off of the face of the earth with the exception of one family who God would work through to then bring about a repopulation of the earth. And not long after that time, God would, would go and, and he, would, he would pick a man. He would choose a man. He, he would set apart. Not because he had a particular love for this man, although he did love him, but to say, I'm going to begin working through you to bring about the rest of my plan of salvation. And so he chose Abraham. He pulled him out of a pagan country and he, he set him apart. And he said, you'll leave your father's house. You're going to go. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And, and through you, you will represent me and you'll be a blessing to all nations. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12, that here God is talking about being a blessing to all nations. And so then through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob has his sons and, and man, his, his sons have got some issues, right? And they do some things to their brother and Joseph finds himself. Now he goes into Egypt and, and Joseph goes through some hard times, but what he begins to recognize is God's hand is upon me. And so there he is in Egypt and he realizes that God is using him to save many people. And eventually then here, here comes a time of, of famine. And then with that, here come his brothers. Here comes his family. And he's able to, to, to spare his family. And, and they come and they live in Egypt and they come as 70. 400 years go by and now they're 2 million. Kindness of Pharaoh is forgotten and now they're seen as a threat and they need delivered from this. And God moves on behalf of his people once again to deliver them from the oppression that they're experiencing. And mind you, God moves in such a way where he delivers them. We've considered this in our Bible class on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings with our high school students here at Grace. That he moved and delivered them politically and economically and socially and spiritually. He worked in every one of those areas to give them new life. We know that crazy things started to happen in Egypt. Plagues came upon them and a very significant one on the last night before they were delivered and ultimately allowed to leave, angel of death visited, but not those who had sacrificed the lamb, who had put the blood on their doorpost and remained inside and feasted on the lamb. Those were spared. Following that, they cross over the Red Sea on dry ground and only to turn and see their enemies consumed and they find themselves there in the wilderness of Sinai as they begin to rejoice and give God praise. A few months go by and they find themselves, we talked about this briefly at the men's study yesterday, find themselves there at the foot of Mount Sinai. God finally has his people unto himself. He's working through Moses, but he begins to communicate to his people Israel and he says, you've seen what I've done. If you'll follow me, if you'll obey me, I'll make you a kingdom of priests, representatives of me. It'll be a blessing to all nations, all people. Not just them. Yes, God had chosen a very special people that he cared about and still cares about them today, but a people that he would use to reach all of the lost with the truth. 
They didn't want to go up. They were too afraid. In some respects, I think we'd have been pretty afraid too, seeing the mountain quake and fire and the smoke. And nevertheless, God came down. If you won't come up, I'll come down to you. And he dwelt amongst us. And in that time, because he's still a holy and righteous God, there were certain provisions that needed to be in place. Laws that were intended to, to govern the people and to protect the people and to dictate the relationship that they were to have with him. And so there were some things there that we're less familiar with today. There as he met with them in the, in the tabernacle and, and through the priests and then, of course, the temple. And, and God would continue to work in his people. But here then would come another 400 years, this time 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, the silence would be broken. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. No doubt, as John was there baptizing and he sees now Jesus making his way to him, he can't help but think back all those years, God protecting and providing his people to think of, of that Passover night as they, as they sacrificed the lamb and took the blood and spread it on the doorpost and went inside and, and feasted on this lamb that now here he sees Jesus walking down to the water and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so then Jesus begins then his, his ministry and he begins to call people unto himself. And, and, and of course, he invests in his disciples and other close followers. And he begins to teach. And, and, and eventually, along the way, as he's nearing the end of his ministry, he takes a few of them. He takes them up onto the mountain. Many years before that, there was an invitation to go up on the mountain. They didn't want to go. This time, he says, a few of you are coming with me. And there on the mountain, he begins to reveal elements of his glory. And there who appear with him, Moses and Elijah. And it says that they discussed his departure. The departure, translated exodus, is what was to come now. Jesus was preparing to go through his own exodus and to lead his people out of the world and into right relationship with him. Saying then as he there conversed with Moses and Elijah that I am the fulfillment of all of these things. That all that the word has spoken about is, is fulfilled in me. And then he went to the cross obediently. And as he died on the cross, the earth quaked. The veil was torn. We're given access now to boldly go before his throne of grace in our time of need. He says, come. Again, a God who has been continuously in pursuit of his people. And he rises again. He's victorious over death. He, he's seen by many people. He, he meets with his disciples still in many days following. And then eventually he, he, he ascends into heaven. And he goes ultimately because he says, the helper must come. The Holy Spirit that will indwell you. He's in the process then of establishing his church fully. Making representatives of kingdom of priests, each and every one of you, Christian, who will now be representatives of him throughout the world, who will tell others, you can go to him. You can have right relationship with God. And so there he says, wait, wait until the spirit comes and, and the spirit comes and falls upon them and they begin their work. And many people are saved that day. The church has begun. And it wasn't long after that, that then, and we're getting there, we're closing, that Peter's on a roof. Peter's on a rooftop and he's waiting for lunch. He's praying and, and God, God comes to him in a vision. He goes into a deep trance and he begins to see this sheet coming down from heaven and it's filled with all sorts of animals, unclean animals. And the Lord communicates to Peter and says, Peter, get up, take and eat. Lord, I've been a good Jewish boy all my life. I've never eaten these things. I've never done this. 
These are unclean animals. Does the Lord say to him, don't call unclean what I've made clean. Now, yes, was this permission now for Peter to go and enjoy some barbecue? You bet it was. But it was so much more. In this moment, Peter, the one who he had said, on, on this rock, I will build my church. The one who he had said, and we can debate a little bit on how rock is translated there, but nevertheless, we can agree that he said, I'm going to use you, Peter, in profound ways. I'm going to use you, Peter, Petros, little stone, to do profound things for the church. And so it wasn't in this moment that Peter got permission to go to Little Pigs for lunch. But it was in this moment that the Lord said, Peter, you, you, you forget about your past and your preferences and your prejudices and you begin to see what I'm doing to reach all people because I love them all, not just these, Peter. And here we are. He said, Peter, don't miss it. Don't miss it because you're so stuck on your preferences, because you're so stuck on how you do things that you're unwilling to see how I'm doing things. Rather than dividing over disputable, non-essential matters, rather than seeking our own pleasure or preferences, rather than letting Satan turn our hearts away from one another by letting bitterness and unforgiveness rule, let's seek peace. Let's please others. Let's unite around Jesus. Amen? Charles Spurgeon writes this. I found it fitting. He said, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect, because he could see no fault in us, or because he hoped to gain somewhat at our hands. Oh, no. But in loving condescension, covering our faults and seeking our good, he welcomed us to his heart. And so in the same way and with the same purpose, let us receive one another. Receive one another just as Christ received you. And he closes in verse 13. He brings this argument to a close saying, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy and peace only come through belief. And in believing comes the power of the Spirit, the power that gives hope to this type of unity. It's through Jesus and Him alone, our living hope, that we can experience such unity amongst this church today. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.